Hi, I'm Tara DeVore, parent advocate, teacher, and member of the training corps at the University of Missouri's Thompson Center. Welcome to Supporting the Spectrum podcast. I'm here to bring you the most up-to-date information on research, services, and supports for autism. Join me to develop a greater understanding of autism and ways to support the neurodivergent community. This is Supporting the Spectrum. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Supporting the Spectrum. I'm your host, Tara DeVore. When first learning about autism, one of the hot topics of discussion is the waitlist to receive an evaluation. Whether you have a young child who is not meeting milestones or have an older child who is having difficulties at school, as soon as you are recommended to seek out an evaluation, you are probably in that same breath told that there will be a wait to receive the evaluation. And you must have a diagnosis before your child can receive some services. As a parent, I've been there and it can be frustrating. Why is there a wait list to help our children? Well, there are several reasons why there is a wait list. If you listened to our previous episode about the ADOS, you will recall how intricate the diagnostic process is. And that is just one factor that plays into the wait list. To help us better understand the wait list crisis is Dr. Connie Brooks, Director of Health Professions at the Thompson Center. Welcome, Dr. Brooks. Hello, thanks for having me. Okay, we're gonna start with an easy question. Okay. What are your favorite pizza toppings? Well, I actually thought long and hard about this because I know you've been asking guests and definitely for me, Canadian bacon and pineapple. I know it's controversial with the pineapple, but Shakespeare's makes a delicious pizza with those toppings and it's the best. So I highly recommend it. That sounds really good. I like pineapple on pizza. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know why it gets so much hate. I know. I like pineapple and jalapenos because it's like sweet and spicy. Yeah, I'll try that. That sounds good. That's good. Can you tell me a little bit about your role at the Thompson Center? Sure. So like you mentioned, I'm director of health professions, which means I oversee services that are run by our psychology team, our neuropsychologists, and support our speech language and occupational therapy services as well. And then I'm also on the executive team, and so that means I go to a lot of meetings um, and get to say what I think, and sometimes cool things happen. But it's nice because I get to inform processes and policies and support all the people in the center who are doing good work here. Yes, you do have a big role here in all of the divisions. All of the things, yes. Yes. What inspired you to become interested in the field of autism? Well, it's an interesting story because I was not interested in the field of autism and originally worked with kids in the foster care system and did evaluations with kids and then also parents whose children were removed and adoptive and foster parents. And I did that for many, many years. It's a pretty tough population to work with. The system is underfunded, overworked. And so Around the time I was starting to rethink my specialty, Dr. Steve Canny, the former executive director of the Thompson Center, invited me to do a talk to the center about the foster care population and how consent looks different and history looks different and all of that. So I did that and it went really well. And Dr. Canny asked me if I would consider working with kids with autism. And I said, no, I don't want to do that because honestly, I just felt like it's really complicated and hard and I just wasn't thinking I was up to it and so he asked me to just observe for a little bit so I came over and observed and I fell in love 
and the families that I get to work with and the kids are so hysterical even when they're having a giant meltdown they're still amazing and I never regret that decision for a minute that I switched specialties. Yes, that's such an incredible story. <laughs> I did not know all of that about your work in the foster care system. Oh, yep. That's very cool. Okay, now we're going to start our waitlist questions. Okay, I'm ready. So to start off, why is there a waitlist? Well, there are several factors that I wanted to share. But before I do that, I just wanted to kind of put out there that the waitlist is an incredible stressor to families and also to everybody who works in the field of autism. It keeps us up at night. Almost at every single meeting we have, we're talking about ways to reduce the wait list. So I just want listeners to know that we understand they're frustrated and know that we're doing lots of things to make it better. The wait list exists just like waitlist said other services. For autism specifically, we don't have enough autism experts, particularly diagnosticians or developmental behavioral pediatricians who can help with the diagnosis also. So just in the field in general, we need to train like a million more people to help serve this population. The prevalence increase, I think, also has impacted the wait list. More people are seeking answers and diagnosis. And of course, insurance will require a diagnosis for some services. And so that system requiring that diagnosis also creates a bottleneck Two other things that come up a lot is that families get on multiple wait lists, and so we really don't know what that looks like right now. I would do the same if it were my child, so I don't begrudge anybody for doing that, but it does make all the wait lists a little bit longer, um, so we want to think about that. And then the last thing that I always think about with the wait list is that over time, as people become more familiar with autism and stigmas becoming less and less, that... Autism used to be a diagnosis of like last resort. And so if a kid was struggling and some other diagnoses didn't seem to fit or the treatment didn't seem to work, that's when a family or a school, you know, would seek diagnosis of autism potentially. Now I think it's a diagnosis also a first resort. So people are aware the wait list is long, so get on it as soon as possible. That makes complete sense. And also it's one in 44 kids with autism. So chances are that could really be a part of the picture. And so you want to know. So I think all these things combined make the wait list pretty long. And like I mentioned, we're, we've got lots of ideas for reducing it and, and we're working on it. It's a great explanation of why there's a wait list and the factors that are contributing to making the wait list so long. There are so many things that play into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about the different clinics at the Thompson Center and the different types of evaluations that they do? Sure. So we see kids for non-autism things as well. And so we have a neuropsychologist who sees kids with complex medical issues and may have some learning concerns. And he does comprehensive evaluations for those kids. And then also kids who have been diagnosed with autism who also have learning concerns. And so he will see those for evaluation. We also provide learning disability evaluations. There are concerns for cognition or intelligence. We can do those evaluations. Also, ADHD is something that we look at, and we have a concussion clinic as well. 
in terms of autism, we have several clinics. So families are triaged based on parent reports on some screening tools that we use. So we can sort kids by either low risk or moderate to high risk. And then we also triage them by age. So we prioritize our younger kids because of access to early intervention, but we also are serving all the way up to age 18. And so that's been helpful to think about how autism can complicate things when somebody's struggling. And then we also have a foster care clinic. So we are specifically looking at kids in foster care and whether they have autism. And that's a really complicated clinic as well. There are a lot of different clinics. Mm -hmm. I know before I started working here, I had no idea. And I think it's really good that you explained all of the other clinics that we have here besides just autism, because I think sometimes people look at, you know, it's just autism that we're looking at. So why is the wait list so long? But when you're adding in all of those other things, too, that we're looking at, it makes sense that there are a lot of people with a lot of different things going on. So. Right. And that's just our diagnostic clinics. That's not even thinking of like interventions that we do or mm-hmm. medical team clinics. And so I would definitely say autism diagnostics is the biggest thing happening at the Thompson Center, but we do lots of other things too to help kids. That's awesome. Is the wait list specific to the Thompson Center Or do a lot of autism centers have a wait list? Well, unfortunately, every autism center I know has a long wait list. Our national average of wait time is 12 to 24 months. Recently, I talked with some centers on the northeast part of the states, and they have waits of three to four years. And so I just, I can't even imagine how frustrating that is for everybody involved. So... Not that it's an excuse that our waitlist is also long, but it's a national issue that the systems in place need to be corrected. Yeah, that three to four years, that's so hard, especially for those little ones who Mm -hmm. you are trying to get the early intervention for. And then the older ones, if they're waiting, Mm -hmm. it's so hard. I know, I know. What happens if there is an inaccurate diagnosis made? Well, I'm very glad that you asked that because it happens a lot. So an inaccurate diagnosis is problematic because the whole purpose of a diagnosis really is to get the right follow-up care. And so if someone gets a diagnosis of autism, most likely they're going to be receiving maybe some speech-language therapy, occupational therapy, applied behavior analysis, certain follow-up with medical providers, But the intervention that most impacts the child's behavior concerns would be ABA or applied behavior analysis. So that is such a specific intervention. Waitlists are present for those services as well. So if autism is not the accurate diagnosis, then families are waiting to get into an intervention that is not best suited for what else is going on with their child. So it really can delay treatment, and it also could be the wrong treatment. So that that's a problem. And is it okay if I share like an example from recently? So in our foster care clinic, we worked with a little girl who was seven. She had pretty significant history of trauma. And in our foster care clinic, we bring in biological families so we can get that early history piece. And we had the foster parent and lots of documents from the children's division and the court. And so we were able to 
really get a, a picture of this little girl from birth and what all of her symptoms look like over time. Prior to coming to us for an evaluation, they had seen a different provider a couple of times and only the foster parent went to that appointment and she was given an autism diagnosis. When we saw her, we did not give an autism diagnosis and in fact diagnosed her with conduct disorder. So for people who aren't familiar with that, it's a pretty serious diagnosis and getting that under control is very important because she's breaking laws already and she's seven. She's killed animals. She was flipping over desks. She was ripping hair out of her classmates and stealing money and all sorts of other things. And so she was in ABA already because of the autism diagnosis. So an ABA is not going to address animal cruelty. So unfortunately, that time was wasted because it was an inaccurate diagnosis. And when we read through everything, it made a lot of sense why that provider came up with that diagnosis. So no judgment or anything about that. But that provider doesn't have expertise in the foster care system, to my knowledge, and also in complex autism diagnoses. So we had to have all that information. We had to have the biological family there. And so when we think about gathering all the information you need to make an accurate diagnosis, it takes a lot more time. And so that just didn't happen with this kiddo. And we were glad to see her and hopefully they're getting her on the right track. That is so sad. I know. It just shows that with the increase in prevalence of autism, people are trying to solve the waitlist problem and they're trying to see more patients Mm -hmm. and give quicker evaluations, but sometimes that's not the answer. And sometimes those kids that do have those stereotyped, they look very clear-cut autism, might not even be autism. Yeah, correct. And I'm I'm in favor and I support some of these other services that say, you know, for kids under five who have some pretty classic autism symptoms, I do think seeking a faster appointment or maybe a shorter appointment makes a whole lot of sense, gets gets them through the system faster to get to services for that early intervention piece. But I think that we have a lot of kids who are older than five. And we have a lot of kids under five who are complicated. And so for those kids, they really need a comprehensive evaluation with an expert who can provide the differentiation. Because if it's not autism, what is it? And regardless of the diagnosis, the goal is that we get the kid into services that they need and we want them to succeed, whether it's autism or not. And so taking the time to do that evaluation is really important. With my son, we were on the wait list here and we did get on another wait list Mm -hmm. at our pediatrician's office. And so one of the pediatricians in his office did a, I believe it's like a stat Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And when we did that, he told us that he was giving a preliminary diagnosis of autism, but he wanted us to follow up and have an evaluation done here Mm -hmm. to make sure because he was seeing some things that like he was yes, autism, but then he was saying other things that he wasn't sure about. Mm -hmm. And I just think about that and how great it was that he was like, I'm giving you this diagnosis preliminary because I see it, but I want you to also see the experts at the Thompson Center and make sure that it is a correct diagnosis for him. 
Yeah. And that's great that that provider referred on so that you and your family would have a lot more information about how to help your son and confirm the diagnosis because really like a provisional or a preliminary diagnosis of anything doesn't get you anything. You don't get services. You are still stuck. When that's problematic is when it's a duplication of services to some degree. So that's an issue in terms of like who's funding these services and time that's spent by the families. And we often, often, at least once a week, have a family come in who's gotten an evaluation of some type somewhere else and they just felt like it wasn't thorough or they felt like they didn't get enough information or they just wanted to come to see us anyway. And so we know that this duplication is happening pretty regularly. And so that's another thing that we're targeting in our efforts. That just adds to the wait list mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when thinking about those inaccurate diagnoses, why is it important to have trained professionals who are experts in autism completing those evaluations? Mm, that's a really great question because I think that there's a misconception that autism is just another behavioral diagnosis or developmental diagnosis, and it is and it isn't. Symptoms of autism overlap with everything. So many symptoms overlap with ADHD, with anxiety, with trauma, so post-traumatic stress disorder, with oppositional defiant disorder. So on the outside, These behaviors look like other diagnoses, and they look like autism. And so if you go in thinking, this is an autism evaluation, I'm looking for autism, and you see those symptoms, you're going to diagnose autism, possibly. If you're an expert in autism, there are subtleties that you need to understand how to differentiate all those pieces, because it's not so much the symptom at face value, it's the quality of the symptom, or it's the absence of certain symptoms. And things get more complicated when kids are older, if they're females, and if they have complex history like co-occurring medical conditions or trauma or other pieces. Or if you have reporters who maybe see the child in different ways. So if you have parents who don't live together or they're bitter toward each other for whatever reason, you know, they might report symptoms differently. So you really need someone who can parse all of that out. There's a lot that goes into that evaluation process Mm -hmm. for sure. And with that explanation, you can see why it is important that providers who are doing these evaluations have a good amount of knowledge on autism and how to diagnose it. Correct. And using those diagnostic tools that we talked about on our last episode with the ADOS, knowing how to give those and how to tease out Mm -hmm. all of the information that you're getting before making a diagnosis. Yeah, correct. And the the ADOS, I think, is not the end-all, be-all, but it's a pretty amazing tool. And so I like to use it. If I had a shorter tool, I don't know if I would pick it just because having that time with the kiddo is extremely helpful. Going along with that, thinking about a shorter diagnostic process, Mm -hmm. there are like apps and things that are in development Mm -hmm. to be able to pick out those kids. What are your thoughts on those? Well, on the one hand, I really appreciate that people are trying to figure something out to get the earliest diagnostic process started as humanly possible. So that's nice that 
we're all aware of this issue and we're trying to do something. Otherwise, I'm not a big fan of them because there's no clinical input in terms of the data being entered. So parents will fill things out based on what they see and what they feel. And I think that parents aren't clinicians or autism experts necessarily. And so there's always a little bit of information that might be missing or perceived differently. For example, I have lots of parents who describe their child's behavior as like obsessive compulsive. True, if you line things up or if you do something repetitively, it looks like an obsession or compulsion type behavior. So if they report that into an app, how is that perceived or recorded or analyzed when that could really be OCD or it could be autism or it could be anxiety. So it could be lots of things. I think those tools are going to tell people like, yep, autism might be something to think about. So go get an evaluation. So these screeners are going to do the exact same thing that other screeners are already doing. So I just don't see that added benefit. I'm not familiar with all of them, but so far that's been my impression. That was kind of my thought, too. I know whenever I first heard about it, I was like, wow, they'll be able to diagnose Mm -hmm. autism by, like, tracking eye Mm -hmm. movements? Like, Mm -hmm. that's amazing. But then that's not autism. Autism Mm -hmm. is so big, and there's so many facets of it that I don't see how an app could accurately diagnose it. And then there's no other diagnosis that we would trust an app to give, like, cancer. We wouldn't trust... right a diagnosis of cancer from an app. Right, correct. So it's it's a very awesome thing that is happening. And like you said, Mm -hmm. we recognize that we need to speed up the diagnostic process. But I think that there are tools that are already there that are kind of doing the same things, like the Mm MCHAT is similar. Yeah, for sure. And also the tools that I've seen kind of advertise as a screen, not a diagnostic tool. But out in the real world, I think that's really hard to distinguish. And so people think like, okay, this is a diagnosis. And screeners we know typically have a wider net. And so you're going to categorize more people as needing follow-up, which is completely appropriate. So I'm not sure that's going to help the wait list. That's another thing to think about is the semantics about screeners. Is it a diagnosis? How is this tool helpful? How is it different from the things we already have in place? And who's designing them? You know, if I own, I don't know, a tech company or a pharmaceutical company or I, I don't know, what's the motivation? And I, I do think most people it's about kids, which is really good. But I think we should always ask. And always seek out the expert. Yeah. So what can we do to shorten the wait list? Well, I have a lot of ideas. Um, bottom line is we need more experts. So recruiting providers. Honestly, I think we need to start with kids in elementary and middle school talking about being a clinician and working with pediatrics and what does that mean? And then slowly expand the audience that might be interested in this type of a career and then do lots and lots and lots of high quality training. And so at the Thompson Center, I know that we typically have about 10 to 12 practicum students in one year, and then they stay multiple years sometimes. Plus, we have interns and postdocs. In terms of that workforce, we're really helping increase that, and I know other centers are doing similar things. We need more space. So if you have 12 trainees, where are they going to go? Where do they write their reports? All of that kind of logistics that you need to figure out. I think there are things to do 
with the referral process itself, like after we've got families on a wait list and the wait list is at a certain length, I think it's helpful to call back and say, what else do you need? Are you still interested in seeking this evaluation? Is there something in the meantime that you can do? I don't think every single person on the wait list is going to end up coming in for an evaluation. So if we can identify those people earlier and get them what they need, then we can take them off the wait list and then shorten it. So I think that's something that we can do more of. Those are great ideas to help shorten the wait list. Mm-hmm. Definitely need more more clinicians who can diagnose in space. Absolutely. So what can caregivers do to support their child while they are, are on the wait list? So lots of things. One thing is that I know caregivers often tell us, well, we have to wait for a diagnosis before we can get any services, and that's absolutely not true. The majority of services you can receive without an autism diagnosis, the exception is applied behavior analysis, and that's an insurance thing. But speech-language therapy, occupational therapy, supports at schools are possible. So parents should proceed with all of those things without waiting for a diagnosis. And I know that that's confusing because service providers and sometimes schools will say, we can't do anything until we get this diagnosis, and it's just not true. I think parents should just do what they do best and advocate for their kid. The other thing I think parents should do is just continue to seek education and support. And so there are lots of online trainings that can give you information about autism or other types of diagnoses and other kinds of services that are available. The thing I worry about a lot with our parents is that it's really stressful to wait and your heart hurts when you see your kid suffering or just struggling in some sort of way. And so I really think parents should do their very best to try to make sure that they have some support. And so that could be talking with coworkers. It could be an online group or just something to kind of vent to. I think most people now know somebody who has a child with autism, so that's helpful in a way to kind of talk through some things, but really prioritizing that because if the parents aren't feeling well and healthy and less stressed, then they're not able to necessarily do the things that their child needs. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's true for all of us parents and our kids. And so I think when your kid might have autism, it's even harder because you know it's going to be a minute before you get in. And so I think just that layer of stress is pretty significant. Yes, I can absolutely speak to that. There is just a lot of unknown. And for my family, my son, he is our first child. Mm -hmm. And we noticed characteristics pretty early. I was telling someone the other day, I remember when he was like seven months old Googling, he's not making eye contact Mm -hmm. with me. But having a support system who can support you through that and tell you, I know for me, I have a a friend group and all of us have a child with autism. One has a teenager, one has an elementary age, and then two of us have young children. And so it's really great to have the support of other parents Mm -hmm. who, who have been through the same journey and who can support you and talk to you about the things that are going to happen, even though none of our kids are going to do the same things at the same times. But it's just good to know that other people are having the same experience. 
Absolutely. And just to have some guidance and also to know that the experiences are typical and you're not crazy and your kid's going to be okay and all of that. I mean, it's same thing for, you know, typically developing kids. I have friends who have children who are a little bit older than my daughter and every stage, you know, I talk to them about, okay, so middle school is going to suck, right? Okay. So what do I need to do? And so I think prioritizing that group, like if you need to do laundry or vent to a friend, you need to vent to a friend, like prioritizing that piece of it because laundry can wait. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so now we're on to our last few questions. So you've talked to us a lot about your job here at the Thompson Center. What is the best part of your job? Hmm. So this is in some ways a hard question because I really like coming to work and helping families. But also it's an easy question in some ways because at the Thompson Center, I have the privilege of doing a lot of clinical training. So the two things I like the best about my job is that, well, one, when I have someone who has been a trainee and then I see them work with a family and the family gets what they need and the trainee feels really satisfied and helpful and confident, it feels like, you know, I'm pushing the little birdies out of the nest and they're flying and doing great. That just brings me so much joy to know that every trainee that we push out of the nest can see lots and lots and lots of families. And so I I really like that. And then honestly, the kids I get to see, I just, I adore them. I had no idea it would be so amazing. You know, one of my most favorite kids, he was a four-year-old. He was so stinking cute and he was just wonderful. And he... He had um, a restricted interest in the skin repair process at age four. So he could talk about like how scabs heal and things like that. And it was fascinating. He could also, you could say two countries in the world, and he could tell you what are all the countries you would need to go through in order to travel from one to the other. And he was four. Oh my goodness. And yeah, he had trouble making friends. And yeah, he had some behavioral issues. We need people like that. They're fun. They're interesting. They make life more exciting. And I would like someone to look at a scar that has a restricted interest in the skin repair process. Like, we need people who dive that deeply into topics. Our world needs it. And so I just, when kids say funny things like that, I always try to tell parents, encourage this, you know, unless it's harmful, encourage it and let's see where it goes. That's incredible. I love, (laughs) I love hearing those stories. They do. They just have such strong interest and they're brilliant. Mm -hmm. The things that they think of and the way their mind works is amazing. And we do, the world needs Mm -hmm. people like that. And we need to embrace those people and just hold them up and let them do what they're so good at. Absolutely. And I would just add that on the other end of the spectrum, we have kids who are teenagers and they're nonverbal, but they're communicating in other ways. Or maybe they have lower cognitive functioning, and so they're really struggling with what's going to happen when they graduate or go to their next journey in their life. Those kids are really, really important too because they teach us things that – we would never have imagined. So when I've worked with some kids who are nonverbal and older and they're so lovely. So even even when they're acting out and having, you know, some struggles, 
they teach you compassion and patience and love for humanity and these things at a level that no offense to my kid, but like, I don't get that same vibe from her. (laughs) She's kind of doing her own thing. But like, you know, these other kids, it's like, it slows you down for a minute and helps you just appreciate humanity and all the variations in it, and how to be like kind to each other. And so I just really have a lot of respect for families who have children with disabilities and in particular autism. It's I think it's they're amazing. They are. What is one piece of advice you would give to people wanting to support autistic individuals? So I think in general, just being kind and understanding what you may have in common with others. For example, with that four-year-old, so I don't have the skills that he has, but I can relate to him in the sense that I like to share my knowledge with other people. Or if I'm working with a teenager who maybe uses a wheelchair and is nonverbal, but when you tell a joke, he laughs and laughs. So I can relate that, okay, yeah, we both love jokes. And so I just think when we run into trouble is when we stop relating to people and we focus on like, oh, we're different. Pretty big problem in the world right now. And I think we need to align and support each other and just be kind. I don't think it's that hard. Yes. Be kind and accept everyone. Yes. Is there anything I should have asked you but did not? I think you should end the podcast with asking about people's favorite dessert. Okay. So I was thinking about my favorite dessert, but what's your favorite dessert, Tara? It's hard. I had a birthday this week, and my husband got me crumble cookies Mm. and so I'm gonna have to say those they were really good we had to cut each cookie into like fourths and we're still Mm -hmm. eating on the box of them yeah so crumble if you're out there you can sponsor the podcast let us know yeah send us (laughs) some cookies I'm a huge fan of gooey butter cake but it looks and tastes very different depending on where you get it from and then my best friend and I have a rule that if you go to a restaurant and they have bread pudding you have to order it and you have to share it with somebody never had bread pudding well sometimes it has raisins and so some people have feelings about that (laughs) but usually it's pretty good and usually it has alcohol in it which I'm a fan of okay yeah thank you Dr. Brooks for joining us today I feel like I have a much better understanding of why the wait list does take some time to get through and I know from working here that nobody likes that the wait list is so long and everyone is working so hard to see as many patients as quickly as they possibly can. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Supporting the Spectrum. Join me in two weeks for a new episode. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes are released. Thank you for supporting the Spectrum.